Welcome to International Tax Bites, a series of conversations around issues and concepts in international taxation. I'm Graham Jackson, and I'm a Gibraltar and English solicitor with Hassan's international law firm in Gibraltar. Today, I will be speaking to my podcast partner, Harriet Brown, who is a Jersey advocate and English barrister with Old Square Tax Chambers in London. So, Harriet, this is it then, part two, slightly delayed um, by pressure of work, but here we are, part two of the transfer of assets abroad regime. And our lovely listeners listened to us in the last episode explaining uh, the treatment when somebody transfers assets to a person abroad from the UK um, and how they are then taxed to stop them avoiding UK tax simply by pushing assets out to to people who are abroad to look after like companies and trusts and foundations And, and whatever. And importantly, how those provisions catch a lot more things than you think they're going to. Yeah, which is very important. So um, so we went through that and hopefully people will be listening to these back to back. So it all makes sense. We don't need to do a full recap. If you haven't heard the first episode, please go back, play it because we want the listens. Um, and today we're going to look at the defences against the charge under the transfer of assets abroad regime, aren't we, Harriet? Uh, apparently we are. And you know all about them. First of all, is there more than one or is there only one? So there's more than one. So that what, what is really important is this thing called the motive defence, but the motive defence comes in slightly different variants. Okay. Which is always helpful. So, so a good place to start is section 736 of the Income Tax Act 2007. And so we'll have a brief pause there for everybody to open their yellow books. No, I'm kidding. That's what I'm doing. Um, and this this tells you what this part of the ITA does. So the provisions that we're looking at are section 737 to 742A, and they deal with what are described as exemptions from liability. It then goes on to tell us that some exemptions apply according to whether the relevant transactions are all pre-5th of December 2005 transactions or all post-4th of December 2005 transactions or include both. Okay, so what's the relevance of 4th, 5th December 2005? Yes, the previous provision, ICTA, Income and Corporation Taxes Act, I think was amended at that date. Right, okay. And so what what you get is that the defence that applies to the pre-5th December 2005 transactions is the old one and the one that applies to the post-4th December 2005 transactions is the new one. So at the risk of at the risk of not giving enough detail for your highly trained barrister mind shall we just deal with the post-2005 because it's 17 years ago now? No. Okay should we deal with both? I well Graham this is why I think we need to deal with both. Anyone who's listened to the previous episode will recall this thing called an associated operation. And as I think we noted where I cited, and I'm going to cite, and I'm going to mention it again here, James Kessler's book, we mentioned that there's no sort of time limit on when something can be an associated operation. Effectively, it's something that just touches on the property that was transferred at any time going forward or crucially backwards. So to determine whether or not a motive defence is available, effectively, you need that motive defence to apply to all transactions and associated operations. And so we do still need the old, the old in inverted commas motive defence, because if you've got a series of transactions that you've got to take into account, you're going to need to apply it. So it's not, I, I, I agree with what you're saying generally, Graham, which is that the further away you get from something, the less relevant it is. Unfortunately, I don't think that's necessarily the case here. Okay, now that's 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 a very good explanation of why it's important, and I'm sure every student thinks, ah, I'll not learn that <laughs> for the exam. No, I've never thought that when I've so, been. So, so that's why it's important in this case to uh, to to look to look at the older version um, of the of the defence. So, Harriet, how does the pre 
5th December 2005 version work? Okay, so this is at section 739 because legislation helpfully starts with the new, I'm going to call them the new defence and the old defence, even though that's not a strictly accurate label. So 737 is the new defence, 739 is the old defence. Um, and this this applies, and it, this applies where um, the individual who would be liable to tax satisfies an officer of revenue and customs that condition A or B is met. Okay, so it's A or B. Right? It's A or B, yeah, one or the it's other. Interesting to know that the the test is not that A or B is met, but that an officer of the revenue is satisfied that A or B is met. Yes, I mean, it, it, it is something quite worrying could potentially turn on that on that, um, that, that that difference in wording. However, in practice, you can always have the tax tribunals and appellate courts decide whether, yeah. decide whether or not the, basically the thing is just, it's just, it, it, yeah, they're not bound by any sort of, it's not a power of review of that decision, which the wording might satisfy, or at least that's not how it's applied. Right, okay. So, so what's condition A? Condition A is that the purpose of avoiding liability to taxation was not the purpose or one of the purposes for which the relevant transactions or any of them were affected. So should we unpack that for a little bit? Um, the purpose or one of the purposes. So it doesn't have to be the main purpose or, or does the case law fill that in? No, it's it, the purpose or one of the main purposes. Oh, sorry, the purpose or one of the purposes for which the relevant transactions or any of them were affected. No, it does. It, it can just be a purpose. Okay, so you could be doing a transaction that would be otherwise commercial, and you could put an extra step in, maybe. Yes. Just That's, to tweak. Exactly. Yeah. Just to the, tweak the tax treatment. Okay. What I think is interesting about that is that, and this is an area of case law that's currently developing um, in in other. It's not in a tax avoidance context, but in a different tax avoidance context, it's coming up in some of the film scheme cases. Um, it's coming up in a series of um, enterprise investment scheme cases that are ongoing at the moment. But this is the distinction between a purpose and an effect. Okay. And so um, it comes up a lot in the context of Pauline exclusively for the purposes of. And yeah. uh, you get Vodafone. um which says that um, you have to be careful to distinguish between a purpose and an effect. And just because something will necessarily happen because you do, because you do a B will necessarily follow doesn't mean that it was your purpose to achieve B. Right. So for example, if I left late because I wanted to read a book and then I was driving too fast and drove into the back of a lorry, the accident was definitely caused by my decision to leave late, but it wasn't a purpose of my decision to leave late. Right, okay. Or even arriving late at the other end. Yes. Your purpose is to read the book, not to arrive for the party half an hour late. Exactly. That's an effect. Exactly. That's, 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 that's a more nuanced example that maybe gives a sort of a better feel of the sort of issues that come up. So that's quite important to remember that purpose and effect aren't the same thing. Okay. So that's like, there's a lot there's, there's a lot to think about in that. Isn't and the there? other important thing to remember about condition A, it's the purpose of avoiding liability taxation was not the purpose or one of the purposes for which the relevant transactions or any of them were affected. And everyone who listened to the previous episode will know that relevant transactions are relevant transfers and also associated operations. And so that makes good what I was saying about um, you need to look back at all the associated operations and check for right. tax avoidance purpose there in, in effect okay right so and do you take a do you take a so th that's for which the relevant transactions transactions or any of them were affected so that's you take both an holistic and a granular approach yes you have to look at each of them but you can look but at you them. also look in the round yes yeah. Yeah, then but the important uh, the other important thing to remember is this is this is a sort of a tainting provision. So if one if one associated operation 20 years ago had a tax avoidance purpose, the whole thing falls to pieces. Wow. From that day 
So from something, that stage forward. Something, something somebody you didn't have control over did 20 years ago can make your transfer tainted now. Yes. Unless we go for our lovely friend, Mr. Kess, James Kessler QC's Unless you can, unless you can sever that proximity test. What was what was it you called that his proposed test? Might have been proximity. I can't remember off the top. Proximity is a good version of what it should be called. <laughs> um, okay, so that's that's a, that's a barrel I'll ask. Condition eight. Um, one, that's the one. One further that... thing. One further thing, one. which is worth remembering. You have to have a purpose of avoiding tax. It's not a purpose of avoiding income tax. Or is or even UK tax or no? I um, it must be UK tax because tax in this context. It, it, great example of statutory interpretation. <laughs> We're looking at the context. The context is UK legislation. Okay, cool. Just to, just to you delineate can, that. Can, well, I say you can avoid your Malaysian tax, but uh, and that's fine. That shouldn't impact it. However, if you try and avoid betting duty you might be caught and there's a case called Sassoon which is helpful with that if, if we have any great readers who want to have a look actually that's a very short case so so just 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 for the record we do not recommend avoiding Malaysian tax we love Malaysia especially our listeners there they're great people and um I don't know why Harry was picking on Malaysia there at all I'll tell you why I was picking on Malaysia there because a case that I had where this question arose the taxing question was Malaysian that was literally right. okay <laughs> so I wasn't picking on them it was just a you know, real a practical life example from real life this is good which is which is also a practical example in real life was why I asked you in the last episode if you transferred something when you were abroad and then go back to the UK whether whether TOAA was relevant um okay which it was yes so um that's condition a in the pre-2005 uh rule What's condition B? Condition B is that the transfer and any associated operations were genuine commercial transactions and were not designed for the purposes of avoiding liability to taxation. Wow. OK. The difference between A and B is A doesn't demand genuine commercial transactions. Is that right? Uh, that's the first uh, that's that's the first the first uh, difference the second difference is this phrasing designed for the purpose of which is different to i think is narrower than saying um that there is a purpose or that, that avoiding liability to tax was a purpose or one of the purposes i think it's a very fine line though right uh yes possibly <laughs> i think i think in practice it might be so fine as to be beyond paper thin tissue paper thin even <laughs> yeah i mean the word design surely if you're doing something with the purpose of if, if you're carrying out a transaction for the purpose of something then have you not designed the transaction to fulfill the purpose not always no in in my view hmm. i suppose if you're doing if you're doing something if you're doing something well i, I guess the purpose of the purpose has to be the purpose of the of the person doing it right whereas the design could be done by a third party yes the design could be done yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, it is a different test and the more you pull it to pieces i think the more different it yeah. it, 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 it reveal the more differences it reveals i think that pro probably proposes less in, uh, proposes and poses less interpretive questions than a right uh if we were to say fewer questions, I would agree. All right, fewer. <laughs> fewer questions. Right, we'll move on then. You've upset me now. So uh, no, I'm, I don't think we can move on because you haven't asked me what commercial transaction means. Well, everybody knows that, don't they? Well, not here because it's defined in section seven three eight. Okay, so what what's the what's a genuine what, what's a genuine commercial traction transaction? How can you how can you have an, a commercial transaction that isn't genuine? Well, you can have a transaction that's genuine and well, so first of all, um, the meaning of commercial transaction only applies to the new defence. So I've shot myself in the foot there. Possibly Thanks, even... Harriet. <laughs> Thanks for, for people writing exam questions as we speak, getting it wrong because you because of you. But yes, yeah, so let's so let's let's look at your your ancillary question, which was how can something that, that is genuine not be commercial? 
it, to be genuine, um, I would say all it has to do is not be a sham. So you could have an uncommercial but genuine transaction. That's not the question. The question is, how can a commercial transaction not be genuine? Not how can a genuine transaction not be commercial? Okay, how can a commercial transaction? Well, okay, so you, you think it can't be? I think I'm leaning in that direction. <laughs> I think if it's commercial, then it's done for commercial reasons, and commercial reasons are always genuine. Is that not wrapped in wrapped up in the word commercial? Because you're doing it. You're... No, I don't think so necessarily. I mean, you might have a commercial reason for doing something. I don't know. The answer is I don't know, Graham. It's great podcasting, though. <laughs> Yeah, arguing about the meaning of one word i think this is one of those things where you think i'm not sure and then you'll get you'll end up with a case or there will be a case and the whole case will turn on that question and that will unpick it a bit yeah because you'll see a practical example exactly yeah and you won't know it until you see it yeah let's 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 try and back out of this that way yeah let's do that <laughs> Possibly just edit out the whole conversation or you could do that too i don't think i will i think people love it when we bicker right so can you please explain to us then, given that we've decided that we will know what a genuine commercial transaction is when we see one? Okay. Um, the pre, the the post fourth December two thousand five version of this test, which, looking in my yellow book, is substantially longer. It oh. is. So, you've got to you um you've got to meet condition A or. In a case where condition A is not met, condition B is met. And again, we have this wording, which is you're not liable to income tax for the tax year by reference to the relevant transactions if you satisfy an officer of revenue and customs. OK. Condition A is met or in a case where condition A is not met, that condition B is met. Now, so just to unpackage this briefly here, is there a difference between condition A or condition B is met or... Um, the wording here, which is in a case where condition A is not met, that condition B is met. So you're saying is that different from the from the old version? Yes. Um, what happens if you meet both? Oh, A is met then, right? If you meet yeah, both, so A is met. I don't think it is different, but if, if it but is... It's just lots of extra words to say yes. either. <laughs> Yeah, A or B. They could have said A. Yeah. I think they could have said A or B. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I thought that when I first read it, and then you and then you asked me, and then I doubted myself, and then I talked myself back into it. So yeah, so condition. Of course, it's the same. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So condition... either. Yeah. So condition A is that it would not be reasonable to draw the conclusion from all the circumstances of the case, that the purpose of avoiding liability to taxation was the purpose or one of the purposes for which the relevant transactions or any of them were affected. So at the risk of um, the listeners hearing me bang my head off the table. Yeah. That is very wordy and difficult to understand for a normal human being. I'm not sure it is, but yes, I, uh, I agree that it's got a lot more words in it. <laughs> I said normal, and uh, tax people aren't entirely normal, are they? So let's let's do it. Let's dive in. What does condition A say? Is that, that is that it would not be reasonable to draw the conclusion from all the circumstances of the case that the purpose of avoiding liability to taxation was the purpose or one of the purposes for which the relevant transactions or any of them were affected. Shall we start by looking at what's the same as the old test? Yeah. And that is everything from that the purpose of avoiding liability to tax was the purpose or one of the purposes for which the relevant transactions or any of them were affected. So we understand that because we understood it a minute ago. I'm sure I remember understanding that. Um, yes. So what is so there are two what might be considered two additional elements imported here and which I say really when you look at it properly amount to, to anyway, I don't think it's any different in reality, but let's move on from that. And those are this requirement that it would not be reasonable to draw the conclusion and that you must draw that conclusion from all the circumstances of the case. Well, one would say from all the circumstances of the case, yes, of course, you must look at all the circumstances of the case. Of course. So I'm not sure that that adds anything. So no, that just that just says do a proper job, right? 
yeah it says you can't just you can't just look at one bit you can't just take a very granular approach and look at one bit in isolation and say well that bit there the, there's no purpose of that of avoiding tax but there's a global purpose but we can ignore the global purpose and just look at the little one you got it that's that's making clear what you said about the earlier test graham that you need to have an holistic approach yeah um but i don't think that makes the test any different i just think it's made more um it, it's expressed expressly differently yeah <laughs> expressly so it's this part it would not be reasonable to draw the conclusion so is that an attempt to to apply an object objective yes test yes take away the subjectivity of the revenue officer no i don't think i don't think that's what it is because if you look if you go back to the start of this this very long section they keep in that subjective element of the revenue officers um yeah i see that a revenue officer as a matter of, can never exercise a power unreasonably Otherwise, that's that that then 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 they're not. That's not a proper exercise of the power. It's ultra virus. Yeah. So, is it actually doing anything that wasn't already implied in the previous version? I I take the view that it doesn't. I think what what happens here. I think what this stems from is you get a situation, and I think this this goes to the distinction between evidence and facts and so evidence is so i want to show you what my purpose was in buying a 30 packet of coke zero from Ocado. okay i think we've learned something about harriet's private life there <laughs> maybe just maybe um so how do i evidence what my intention was I mean, because I haven't sent an email to my tax advisors about doing that. And you'd be surprised how many of these cases turn on situations where people didn't send emails to their tax advisors, which they would have been well advised to do. Um, I probably haven't written a letter to my husband about it. So 10 years down the line, when this decision is being, this purpose of mine is being interrogated, all I can do is, is tell you what I now remember my purpose as having been. Right. And so what then a revenue officer may having told them that or a judge, if you've gone on appeal, has to do is decide whether or not that evidence of the purpose is sufficient and is sufficiently consistent with everything else um, to to convince them on the balance of probabilities for a court. I don't know what standard revenue officers apply for quite possibly the balance of probabilities, whether or not that is sufficient. And of course, there's all sorts of problems with that because people looking back with hindsight, you might convince yourself with no sort of, it's natural that we remember things differently. Our memories are very unreliable and we may well look back on something and remember it in a way that is more favorable to the position we now want to adopt without doing that, without lying or being dishonest or disingenuous. It's the way memory works. And so there's that inherent problem with it. And so I think what the it would not be reasonable to draw the conclusion really is aimed at saying, is saying you can't just tell us that that was your purpose. We have to subject that to some proper scrutiny. Effectively, okay. because that's that's all what they're saying is you don't have to take the evidence at face value. Um, the evidence is to purpose at face value. If I tell you I bought a 30 pack of Coke Zero to give as a Christmas present and you know that I drink about 10 cans of Coke Zero a day, you might feel that my explanation of my purpose is inconsistent. Your With, stomach lining must be red raw. Don't drink 10 cans of Coke Zero a day. <laughs> you see my point in any of yes, I see your point. Without I'm not sure it actually. I, I get. I get what you're saying, right? That they're attempting to make that point, but I'm not sure that um, a correctly um, that the a revenue officer correctly applying his powers and and and, and best practice wouldn't already be doing that, right? Well, I didn't write the legislation. No, no, so, no. But I, so I'm just. I'm just saying. I, I think all of that. All of that is already implied in in the practical application of a revenue, the old a revenue officer can't behave unreasonably if they behave unreasonably it's not a proper exercise of the power so 
you know, it's it, it, it doesn't add anything other than I again, it maybe it makes it more explicit. I don't know. I but I don't, and I'm not sure that any of the case law really addresses this particular question yet. It feels like somebody had a budget to spend, so they decided to rewrite that. Who knows? Anyway, right. Yeah. So that's condition A, which we think is it, it is at least arguable that it doesn't materially it's, alter the position. Yes, in a, and the material in, in in all material respects, it's no different. It's a tweaking, if anything. Yeah, just to just to delineate reasonableness and and stuff like that. I sort of see where it's well, I can see where it's where it's attempting to get to. Um, and then condition P, condition B, which I which I will read out. If that's okay with you. Condition B is that A, all the relevant transactions were genuine commercial transactions, see section 738, for the definition that Harriet tried to drag into the old rule before. Right. And B, it is not, it would not be reasonable to draw the conclusion from all the circumstances of the case that any one or more of those transactions was more than incidentally designed for the purpose of avoiding liability to taxation. Okay, so condition B A, seven three seven four A, is um, all the relevant transactions were genuine commercial transactions, which are which they've added the words all the relevant. Yeah, um, as opposed to the transfer and any associated operations. It doesn't make any difference. They've just they've just. Different ways of saying the same Brought thing. it into the definition instead of yeah, exactly. using the words which make up the definition, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, and then we've got a definition of genuine commercial transactions at section 738. Yeah. Which is the per the meaning of commercial... Oh, it's long. <laughs> the meaning of commercial transactions. For the purposes of 737, a relevant transaction is a commercial transaction only if it meets the conditions in subsections 2 and 3. Oh, goody, more conditions. Subsection two is it must be affected in the course of a trade or business and for its purposes or with a view of setting up and commencing trade and for its purposes. And three, it must not be on terms other than those that would have been made between persons not connected with each other's dealing at arm's length or be a transaction that would not have been entered into between such persons so dealing. So you have to be doing it by way of trade or with a view of setting up for it to be genuine and commercial. And you've got to apply the arm's length principle to the terms. And it must also uh, not be the kind of thing that would have entered, been entered into by two persons dealing at arm's length. I think that's actually quite clear, right? I don't think there's much to be unpacked there. Um, making of just as a as a point for the purposes of subsection two, which is the the, the trade or business, then um, making investments, managing and making and managing investments is a trade only so far as the person by whom it is done and the person for whom it is done are persons not connected. And with each other and dealing at arms and so you can things that would not be the word trade is something specific isn't it um uh so as as you were as all our fantastic listeners will remember from the badges of trade test episode that we did which by the way is sadly neglected on our um on our on our chart of our most popular episodes and people should go out and listen to it because it's really good stuff i told you it was boring <laughs> It, it isn't boring. They don't start listening to it. Then it's not like they turn off halfway through. Very well, very well listened to. Its retention rate is very high. Anyway, so the point the point is that it's redefining in order to stop there being a technical argument around is it trade, is it not trade? They're dragging things in that would not otherwise be classed as trade for the purposes of this defense. Right. So that is what a genuine commercial transaction is, and that's the first limb of condition B. Um, the second limb of condition B is that it would not be reasonable to draw the conclusion from all the circumstances of the case that any one or more of those transactions was more than incidentally designed for the purpose of avoiding liability to taxation. So the first half of that sentence, 
which is around reasonable to draw the conclusion is very similar to the to the element in condition a around reasonability right yeah so um it's a it's a weird way of writing it would it be reasonable to draw the conclusion is it is it reasonable um but it's you need to think of it holistically and then draw a reasonable conclusion for that to be met but the thing that's interesting uh, and you can get any one or more of the transactions so you look at it in the round or individually granularly depending on um the perspective you're looking at it for any one given any one point but the interesting thing is that we said we've moved away from condition b in the old one is that the transfer and associated operations were not designed for the purpose to incidentally designed for the purpose it was more than incidentally designed so i think this is um an attempt to stop being clever, people being clever, right? And saying the transaction was actually designed to do X, but it happened to have the uh, effect of saving tax. Yes, I think I agree with that, Graham. <laughs> okay. So um, that's condition B. Is there anything uh, Is there anything else that we need to, to, to look at? No, I don't think, no. No. Um, do we need to look at subsection six? Person is within this section if for consideration the person designs or affects or provides advice in relation to? Yeah, so five, so it's sub five and sub six. Sub five says in determining the purposes for which the relevant transactions or any of them were affected, the intentions and purposes of any person within subsection six are to be taken into account. Right. So that means then that when you're thinking about why was this done or the intentions of why it was done you need to consider the people who were paid to design it rather than just the owners and the operators right uh, yeah which is, is is interesting so that's quite interesting isn't it section 7376 that 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 drag when you're considering the intentions of the person um you need to include those who are paid to design or affect transactions rather than just the beneficiaries the the individual all of that i mean it's quite and also providing advice on that's quite that's quite interesting um that they've cast that net wider and it's sort of got echoes i think hasn't it of um DAC six almost in in that it looks at looks at what's going on at the professional level. Yeah, yeah, it yes, it's um, yeah, it's an interesting one, and I yeah, it 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 hasn't been replicated greatly anywhere else in legislation. So it's as I say, it's an interesting one. Um, again, I've not seen particularly anything in case law yet that has really dug into how that condition works. Right. Well, we await it with bated breath. As always, as with all case law. <laughs> so that's that's the post uh, 4th December 2005 version of the motive defence, which I think was we're saying is essentially pretty much the same with more words. It, it, there are differences, but how significant they are. And I think more importantly, cases in which they would result in a different outcome, how frequent those would be. Yeah, is uh, you not going? If, if in most cases both motive defences would be available on the same facts, there might be some outliers. Yeah, so it's around. I think the big difference for me is the incidentally designed purpose. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, okay, so are there any other versions of the motive defence that are relevant? So let's just quickly go through what else there is. Um, if if you if relevant transactions are both pre and post the December dates. So you've got old test and new test transactions. Section 740 effectively just tells you you apply the old test to the old transactions and the new test to the newer transactions. Okay. Then in section 742, you have a partial exemption in quite limited circumstances. So I'm not proposing that we go into that. Right, okay. Um, and then in 742A, um, you've got a slightly different way of applying um, the exemption for genuine transactions um, 
test post 5th of April 2012. That looks like an EU related. Yes. So that's is that a response to the EU jurisprudence about anti-avoidance being uh, the time the timing seems significant in that respect doesn't it so i would say yes cabri swept maybe uh possibly possibly yeah, yeah uh, that would be about the right timing wouldn't it yeah so so they they basically tempered it to make sure that it doesn't amount to a an unreasonable restriction of the uh the fundamental freedoms right uh yeah i think yeah yeah so the, the, effectively it, it's it's just, it's a sufficiently justifiable um, restriction on fundamental freedoms. Is that? Um, I think there's actually quite a lot, a lot there. Um, there is. But, there's an awful lot there. Yeah. Um, but I certainly think that maybe it's something we should do an episode on in future. It's still the same form about genuine transactions, right? Um, condition A is around genuine transactions, and then you, and then you. Then you look at whether it's um, uh, whether it's a breach of the treaty, essentially, don't you? Yeah. Um, so people can look at that in their own time. That's some. That's some. Um, what's some the word? homework? Some extra reading if they want to do it. So, so then we also have section seven hundred and forty-three, which is the provision that I think we mentioned in the last episode about no duplication of charges. Yeah, you did mention that that you, you don't end up with. Um, where you've got 10 people, they've all transferred one pound, they don't all get taxed to the total amount of the entity offshore. So what the provision actually says is that no amount of income may be taken into account more than once in charging income tax under this chapter. If there is a choice about the persons in relation to whom any amount of income may be taken into account in charging income tax under this chapter, it is to be taken into account in relation to such one or more of them as appears to an officer of revenue and customs to be just and reasonable. And if more than one, in such respective proportions as appears to the officer to be just and reasonable. So it puts quite a lot of sort of weight on, on that revenue and customs officer to determine how the tax is to be charged. So just and reasonable, right? So there's obviously rules around what just and reasonable is. It's not just whatever they, they reckon. And it's not what's convenient either for the revenue, is it? Um, no. So um, they can't just, I know we joked about it in the last episode, but um, they can't just say, oh, like Dave's got £10 million and Billy's got £10. We'll allocate it all to Dave. Um, that that wouldn't be just and reasonable, would it? No. No. Which is Well, arguably not, no. Nice to know. Um, and I don't think they would want to do that either because they're not, so yes, they're, they're trying, as I think we said in the other episode, when they're doing this, any revenue officer is undoubtedly going to be trying to do a good job and be fair. Are there any other defences or just the motive defence? Just the motive defence, really. I mean, we again, we discussed the other day that it, it sort of it doesn't um, charge income that's never been income. So you can't just get a charge unless there's income to match it with. That's not a defence so much as a part of the... Um, way in which the provisions work but it is worth bearing that in mind and we gave the um the, the property that's being lived in by the beneficiary of a trust but there's no rent being paid so there's no income yeah we did give that and then we also gave the health warning that which we will give again now is that there will be many other problems if you do that yes um, <laughs> um okay so it, it, do you think there's anything else that we think are, that our good listeners need to know about uh, transfer of assets abroad oh we were going to talk about so the, we have... the cgt treatment weren't we yes we were <laughs> if only to to say it's not the same thing exactly so i think the only other thing to note on transfer of assets abroad proper or transfer of assets abroad full stop because it's completely different so the only thing to say about transfer of assets abroad is that it is an immensely complex set of provisions. There is an awful lot of case law. I've got a lot of the cases open on my computer now, particularly in relation to the motive defence, and I've got more than 10 tabs, and that's just sort of the main stroke important cases on this. So there is an awful lot of case law. The other thing that's quite interesting is that for a very long time, HMRC didn't really apply the transfer of asset abroad provisions. That is no longer the case. They are 
Um, they are, as I think Graham said right at the outset, an important part of uh, HMRC's approach to tax avoidance nowadays. So it is important that you know about them. I thoroughly recommend reading some of the case law, some of it which you will be familiar with because some of the uh, case law which sort of talks about what constitutes tax avoidance is transfer of assets abroad um, cases because you have this um, test for the motive defence as to whether or not there was a purpose of avoiding tax. Yeah. This has been a whistle-stop tour of those provisions. Um, when They are very complicated and they get more complicated the more you try and look at them, I think. Uh, so, yes. So it's taken but, us an hour and a half to do a whistle-stop tour. Um, I think that tells you everything you need to know. So, Harriet, then explain, because how, let's just, just explain. When we first talked about this, I said, oh, you know, we should cover the, the CGT version of this. And Harriet very gently and in her delightful way corrected me that it's not a version, that it is a separate set of provisions. But I think we need to mention it here because they are generally um, talked if about in the same if breath, one, like if not... Yeah, if one's likely to be a problem, then the other is likely to be a problem as well. Right. OK, so do you just want to give us a very, a very short uh, explanation of the headline parts of the CGT provisions? And then we'll just say why they're different. And then maybe we come back and do another episode in a, in, in a, in a couple of series time to actually talk about them in detail. I think that would be a very good idea. So we're talking about Taxation of Chargeable Gains Act 1992, sections 86 and 87, and then also Schedule 4A, 4B, sorry. Yeah, Schedule 4B, not 4A. We're talking about Schedule 4B. So and th this is similar in that section 86 is a provision that deals with set laws, and section 87 is a provision that deals with beneficiaries. So if you recall from our last episode, you have that distinction and that gate that gap that break between the two so the difference um, between the transferor it's called in in the toa yes and the yeah. people who are not transferors yeah exactly um so maybe the place to start is so and and these do and again another similarity is that section 87 that's the provision that deals with beneficiaries or people who receive payments out of a settlement that is a matching provision like the um like the beneficiary provisions in um the income tax act so what that means is if the if the no no gains have arisen to the trust then there can't be a charge on a beneficiary right okay um section 86 deals with set laws and it's settlers with a light, with an interest in a non-resident or dual resident settlement. And interest here is very widely defined. So it's not just somebody with a life interest. It goes far, far, far broader than that. Right. Um, and it's effectively what that does is it will look at that settlor and attribute on an annual basis any gains in the trust, the non sorry, in the non-resident settlement to that set law so yeah so this applies only to trusts whereas right, the transfer of assets abroad regime applies to all forms of entity we discussed uh, at length didn't we because it's about did, yeah. transferring not about a specific type of uh legal form which it seems like the section 86 charges uh yeah that's that's absolutely right and of course um yeah and so that's that's section 86 and section 87 is the same it has the same sort of scope of, of applying to settlements but that is is broadened to other underlying gains in other underlying entities um by what used to be section 13 tcga but i think is it, it's now section 3 to 3g isn't it that's right so we have that, that that sort of folds in, but we'll come on to that. So Section 86 does have um, some restrictions on which set laws this affects. So um, it applies where um, 
the settlement is a qualifying settlement, the trustees of the settlement fulfill the conditions to residents, which is essentially that they're not UK residents. And a person who is a settler in relation to the settlement is domiciled in the UK. Um, at that's, some why you, that's why the res non doms are OK. Forward. Yeah. At some time in the year and is resident in the UK for the year. Um, at any time they have an interest in the settlement and that there is an amount on which the trustees would be chargeable to capital gains tax in that year. So that that is a very brief sort of introduction to that provision, um, which we're going to talk about at more length. And again, the distinction that we draw between the settlor and the beneficiaries, again, is that the settlor, as with the transfer of assets abroad, is chargeable on everything. The beneficiaries are only chargeable if they actually get some form of value out of the settlement. Right. OK, so just like the person who's not the transferor, when when a distribution or when something comes out of the the person abroad, then uh, they're taxable on it on a, on a receipt type basis. Right. Exactly. Um, however, so Section 87 works on the basis of it, it, it's called it calls itself non-UK resident settlements attribution of gains to beneficiaries. And what it says is that chargeable gains are treated as accruing in a relevant tax year to a beneficiary who has received a capital payment from the trustees in the relevant tax year or an earlier tax year, if all or part of the capital payment is matched um, with what's referred to as a section one three amount. Uh, Which used is to be a gain, right? Two, two amount. Um, it's what's and what even before that was referred to as a stockpile gain, which is the most helpful term. And basically, again, like the way that you calculate the um, tax for transfer of assets abroad, section 87 looks at all the gains globally that have been made by the trust and which haven't otherwise been subject to tax under section 86 or upon a previous capital payment to a beneficiary. And it matches them with those gains, whether or not they arose in the same year. So you have, so you'll have a relevant income pool, which is what you need to calculate your income tax under the transfer of assets abroad regime. And then you will have a stockpile gains pool, which is the gains that have been sitting in the company, sorry, in the trust as well. Right. Okay. That sounds deathly boring. <laughs> um, let's, okay. Look, I'm, I'm not an accountant. I'm not the best person to talk about how you do matching, but that's sort of an introduction to what you might see. No, when... no, no, you will. You're, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm being silly. It, it, it's quite, it's, it's intricate rather than boring, I think. Is it the... is very intricate and I'm not the right person to tell you about it, but I might be the right person to talk about what a capital payment is. So tell us what a capital payment is, then we'll just highlight the differences and otherwise we're going to, we're going to end up doing our episode. We are, yes. So just, to, just to say, um, a capital payment has a much much broader meaning than its normal everyday meaning and effectively it's anything that results in value passing to a beneficiary so it can be something as simple as not only an interest-free loan but a reduced rate loan right. okay so any benefit really yeah any benefit really that that, that isn't sort of chargeable to income tax income tax so it's any payment which is not chargeable to income tax on the recipient or wouldn't be or chargeable to income tax on another person. Um, or if it's someone who's not resident in the UK, any payment received otherwise than as income. So does that create a hierarchy of the charges that you apply the income tax charge first? Yes. And then you work out if it's if that's not applicable, then you move on to the CGT charge. Yes. Or if, say, you've got a limited pool of relevant income, you charge the income and then you look and see if there's any gains. <laughs> okay. And do you think that that's because income income tax rates tend to be higher? So they want to get the, the higher charge in first? I honestly don't know. I honestly don't Seems know. Seems sensible, doesn't it? Seems uh, sensible. It, well, it certainly is the way it is, if I can anyway. put it that way. <laughs> okay. So what the main differences are... CGT charge section 86 applies to settlements, whereas TOA, if we want to call it that, transfer of assets abroad, applies to any transfer, uh, income arising as a result of any transfer. It, the, the, the target vehicle is not relevant. Yes. 
and yeah, um, it follows the same form of transferor slash settlor, um, non-transferor slash beneficiary. Uh, you yes. know, the, charging everything or only charging on a on an actual event of money coming out, uh, and uh, then there are some, and they both take. Uh, and in the second case, it takes the same matching approach. Uh, but the CGT version, I think, has has, has more complicatedness around um, the pooling. Uh, yes, quite possibly. <laughs> I'm saying that so, so, so um, gingerly, aren't I? My yeah, you are. Neither there... of them are experts when you get to that point, and I don't think it's yeah, place here I, to discuss it. Anyway. I really, really struggle to deal with that without a solid example. And as I say, a solid example would, would involve a very, very talented accountant having done the pools for me and then me going through it. <laughs> Not yeah, so without me. without a worked example, we can't really give get, shed and shed too much light on it. And it's not really what we're, what we're doing here today. So I think, Harriet, then at the end of this marathon, um, which has for the benefit of the listeners i i hope you can't notice when when we've done the editing but a power cut in lincolnshire uh which led to to some consternation at one point and um i hope that we've we've explained transfer of assets abroad and compared it to the cgt charge in section 86 uh effectively okay. and they've understood harriet you were brilliant as ever. I mean, you always do the heavy lifting on this technical stuff, and I and I really appreciate uh, the the way that you explain things so simply and clearly. And, and I really appreciate the way you pretend that you don't do that. You couldn't do it yourself. <laughs> it gives me an immense ego boost, Graham. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I'm here to ask uh, simple questions and get complicated answers. So there you go. Thank you very much for your time. You are, it was excellent as ever, and I've really enjoyed myself. Uh, of course. This is just a conversation between two people talking about tax and is no substitute for solid and competent advice in the relevant jurisdictions. Harriet, thank you very much for your time and goodbye. <laughs>